Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Nick Green. He is a contributing writer at Slate and is formerly an editor-at-large for Mental Floss and web editor for Village Voice. His new book is titled How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius, which is published by our friends at Abrams Press. Nick, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Nick, you live in the Bay Area. I lived in the Bay Area for many years. Uh, You state in the introduction of your book that all anyone in the Bay Area wants to talk about is basketball. I want to ask you about that because when I lived in the Bay Area, all anyone wanted to talk about was baseball. And I, a huge NBA fan who grew up with season tickets to the Charlotte Hornets, uh, which meant I was an ecstatic resident of San Francisco when the Warriors drafted Steph Curry. I could not have paid someone back in 2010 to go to a Warriors game with me. I tried. Um, You could get a ticket to a Warriors game for $5 before StubHub fees back then. And so my question for you is what happened? When did everyone in the Bay Area turn into a basketball fanatic? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I um I moved to the Bay Area, I think in 2014, I want to say. Hmm. So right before the Warriors uh, sort of dominant championship run there. Um, and I actually grew up in Chicago. So Chicago in the 90s, um, it was a sort of uh, similar uh ubiquitous sense of uh of basketball was everywhere you looked everyone you talked to and here it's i mean even my mother-in-law's friends will uh just start talking about draymond green it's like my they came over the other they didn't come over they uh swung by and had a uh distance chat in the driveway mm-hmm. and uh the first thing my mother-in-law's friend wanted to talk about was draymond green's two technicals against uh um was it Charlotte the other night? It was the Hornets. Yeah, and, and it's 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 the sort of thing like any, anyone you talk to, it's it's the de facto small talk, but it's more than that. People are genuinely invested in this team, which um, which is pretty fun and, and kind of a cool place to parachute into uh, as a basketball lover myself. Nice. Yeah, um, that was a great game, by the way, from the perspective of a Hornets fan. The Warriors being the <laughs> second favorite team, so um, I enjoyed it. It would have been fine either way. Um, I hate that I missed that period when the, the Warriors started winning championships. I was back in North Carolina at that point mm-hmm. when they won their first title, and I was paying that same uh, $5 or whatever it ended up being to go to Bobcats games. Uh, but Nick, I want to step aside from basketball for a moment mm-hmm. and ask you about aliens. Okay. Um, all right. You open your book by talking <laughs> about when the New York Times uh, recently published an article stating that aliens exist and we have proof, uh, etc. As you mentioned, no one paid attention to this story. Um, <laughs> What happened? Do you think that the non-reaction reaction to this article was because people are like, of course there are aliens, or is it that we were distracted by 2020, or do we just not care? I think a whole lot of factors, a bunch that you touched on. I do think that this that, that happened, I think, in June 2020 was when the article was published. And gosh, there was so much going on in the country then. Um, it was almost like the aliens were timing this like a news dump, like when a politician will have to uh, admit he cheated on his wife at a Friday afternoon press conference. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, the aliens were doing the exact same thing. Um, but yeah, the Times had this, you got to call it a bombshell story with astrophysicists who consult the Pentagon on the record talking about we have, you know, 
materials that aren't from this planet and uh, all these kind of theories where they're they're from and that they could be used in spacecrafts and and whatnot. And honestly, it was the kind of thing that I I found months later and and vaguely remembered. Oh yeah, people I guess briefly were talking about this, but it came and went. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't really leave a dent. And I just thought that was um, sort of a, a funny uh, commentary on on where we all are right now and our sort of how distracting things can be. Um, but yeah, and then that was, you know, on my mind when I was wrapping up the book and working on my intro and I thought, yeah, that's, that's uh, I think a good place to start because you know, it's been on my mind. So a good way to do about, do something about it is write about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Thanks. And the tie into basketball, of course, was that uh, transmissions uh, from the United States television signals could potentially uh, be out there in space somewhere. And you were imagining aliens watching the 1984 NBA finals, a good place to start right at the beginning of the Jordan era there. Uh, Thanks, Nick. Um, So obviously, I love basketball, and I love reading books about basketball. And the interesting thing about your book is that you are approaching people who are leaders in fields unrelated to basketball and asking them the question, would you like to talk about basketball? Uh, For example, in the first chapter, which deals with James Naismith's creation of the game, uh, you speak with game designers. And this, of course, leads to some really interesting insights. First, Nick, can you tell us about Naismith's creation of the game, which was a vastly different game at its inception than it is now? And tell our listeners why it is so interesting to get a game designer's perspective on basketball at its point of creation. Of course, yeah. Well, um, Basketball was was invented in the late 19th century. Um, it really was just a snow day diversion um, at the YMCA. James Naismith was a teacher there. Um, and he was teaching phys ed after a couple um, previous teachers basically quit because the students were so rowdy and uh, they were huge jerks. And they called them um, uh, the, uh, oh gosh, I have the... Um, Naismith's uh, gang of, is it the? Uh, so like incorrigibles. I think so. The incorrigibles. Gosh, I write about them so much. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, they were roughhousing and um, yes, incorrigibles. Mm-hmm. They're the incorrigibles. Um, it's on the first page. <laughs> uh, they were roughhousing and um, you know playing. They had to stay inside and and basically tearing the gym apart. And so Naismith had to come up with a way to keep their attention. Um, and he had tried indoor versions of football, soccer, um, none of them really worked. And so he um, sort of t- at his wits end invented this new game called basketball. Um, yeah, every aspect of his original rules, which are pretty different from the modern game were made to sort of stop violence. Um, you couldn't move with the ball, for example, it was one of basically his first sort of um, epiphany of a rule that obviously has since been removed, but that got people to stop sort of careening into each other when they had possession. Um, the hoop itself, he noticed when you put a net, uh, like a lacrosse net um, or a soccer net, the goal is to wing things as hard and as fast as you can at it, whereas a hoop requires a deft, delicate parabola um, and touch. So everything about it was made to sort of prevent violence, but while also keeping the kids entertained or actually kids, they were, I think, 18, 19, 20, they were um, pretty adults at the time, but the young men, the jerks, uh, as it were, and it worked. It was immediately popular. um, 
and it sort of just sprung from there. And I, I wanted to talk to game designers because he wrote these 13 rules. Um, and when I read them, I, you know, it doesn't seem like a stroke of genius or brilliance to me. I, I can't really imagine it. And so I wanted to ask a couple talented uh, game designers for their thoughts on it and, and what they thought when they read the rules, what they would change, um, what popped out on, at them. And then they had some very interesting insights to that and also to the sort of history of, of game design, um, which wasn't a thing back when Naismith jotted those rules down. Uh, there were no real game designers. Um, every major modern American sport, um, uh, I guess sport in general, not just American, has evolved over centuries from old folk games and traditions, whereas basketball is the only one where basically one individual sat down and said, oh, I have an idea, and thus it sprang. So it, it, um, one of the experts I talked to calls it sort of the, um, the dawn of games being considered a form of authored media. Um, mm -hmm. that before that they were just things that happened, but after Naismith, it became, you know, you could consider them something that, that, uh, sprang about from, from someone with purpose and intent. Right. Um, continuing along these lines, as you mentioned, and as you have written uh, football, baseball, soccer, hockey, all of these games evolved over centuries. Basketball, as you say, sprouted uh, from the brain of this 30-year-old guy, Canadian gym teacher, shortly after breakfast. Um, it seems, Nick, that not only the invention of the game, but many of the game's evolutions were the result of these quick spurts of inspiration after breakfast or perhaps over nachos in a bowling alley. Uh, is there something about the game of basketball that inspires quick bursts of creativity and genius versus these other games, which seem to require much slower bouts of evolution? Yeah, that's, that's sort of um, part of my quest in the book is to find out what makes basketball basketball. And it has evolved so much. And a, a big thing about it is, is so many of the changes um, uh, have come about organically by people fudging the rules or, um, or basically having ideas of their own. And, you know, the jump shot, there was, you know, people started doing that in their driveways and that eventually found its way into the game dribbling itself. Um, again, you weren't allowed to move the ball. So something had to change. Uh, and I think there's something about the game itself being free flowing and, um, you know, very accessible. Anyone can really play it um, helps because you have this diverse group of people basically inputting their ideas and playing around within the confines of the game and, and, and doing their own tweaks. And it, it organically grows from there, but also a, a big help was Naismith himself. Um, he expressed no interest in copywriting his game or sort of taking any real ownership. He thought people were free to play around with it to make changes as they saw fit. Um, some changes he didn't love, but you know, some changes he loved dribbling, for example, even though it went against his kind of primary and first uh, edict, which is you can't move with a ball. He saw people dribbling and said, this is great. This is a fantastic idea. Um, and so his sort of humility and um, I guess uh, lack of greed, because he didn't want money from it. He didn't, he never got a penny from, from basketball uh, helped sort of accelerate and, 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 uh, spark the the change that that makes it the game that we you know billions of people enjoy today 
All right. Thank you, Nick. Um, let's move on to Dr. J. Uh, you mentioned Julius Irving's famous behind the backboard layup from the 1980 NBA finals, uh, specifically as it is written about in an essay by art critic Dave Hickey. Uh, my question for you regarding this essay, Nick, is how is this famous layup by Dr. J similar to Jackson Pollock's drip painting technique. <laughs> well, I think the essay is great. It's called the heresy of uh, zone defense. Um, and both the, the game designers I, I spoke to for this book independently um, talked about it and, and recommended it. Um, and it's this beautiful, you know, fascinating essay about basically how experimentation within the rules um, kind of can yield beauty and moments of transcendence. Um, and Dr. J's um, layup where he, you know, famous layup in the finals where he goes basically down the baseline around, palms the ball, scoops it under the backboard because he's forced to kind of move around it and, and bank it in. Um, that was him adhering to a set of rules. He had to, you know, avoid the baseline. He had to kind of, um, he had to go around the, the backboard, which was put in place, um, you know, century before from, you know, in Springfield, the Springfield YMCA. And uh, there's this moment of transcendent beauty and grace that that comes from that. And it's, um, it's a kind of thing you can't teach. And I think what Hickey, one point he makes is that Pollock's sort of um, splatter paintings, while, you know, original and ingenious when they first sprouted up, when they started to be taught in art school, people were, it, it became rote. And that sort of experimentation that started it, that basically brought about the beauty of the, the drip paintings themselves, um, the spirit of that was sort of lost. It's something that you can't really teach. It's a sense of experimentation and 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 joy that comes from just doing what you can. And again, the Hickey does a much better job than, than I at uh, explaining this. But it's a it's a great essay, and I was I thought it was neat that both game designers immediately pointed me to it because it's something they look to about how they can use rules to facilitate fun. All right. Thanks, Nick. And I, a basketball fanatic, learned something brand new to me about the game in this section, which is why backboards were invented and added to the game of basketball <laughs> yes. in the first place. Uh, would you story. care to, yeah, um, could you shed some light on this for our listeners? Yeah, the reason for that backboards were there was because the YMCA had a balcony where people could sit and um, the game was so popular, it immediately started having spectators, uh, people popping in to watch the kids, the guys playing it. Um, and uh, these spectators were so uh, engrossed and involved in the game that they would reach over and knock uh, hoop-bound uh, basket, you know, shots from from scoring. So they put the backboards up to keep people away, so they couldn't lean over and basically block shots and goaltend from their from their seats. Right. Thanks, Nick. Sometimes the things invented to uh, inhibit us, free us in unexpected ways. And if they had those in baseball, um, Steve Bartman would have had a much different life, I suspect. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I'm poor guy. I, I feel for him. Yeah, I really do. He needed he needed someone in baseball's early days to be the Steve Bartman yeah. guinea pig. So he didn't have yeah. to suffer as he did. Yeah, hopefully he's better now. But but here we are talking about him in 2021. But um, <laughs> listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Nick Green. 
The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Nick Green, author of How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius, which is published by our friends at Abrams Press. Nick, I have one more question about the James Naismith chapter, and then we will move on. Um, I marked that first chapter up with my pen like a student cramming for a final exam. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of students, Naismith in 1911 uh, published an editorial in a magazine lambasting commercialization in sports. He specifically hated the role of money in college athletics. This was 110 years ago. Uh, Today, in 2021, I'm speaking to you from a bookstore that is right down the street from UNC, Duke, and NC State University. All of these schools have thrown caution to the wind when it comes to protecting their students, especially their student athletes, uh, from the coronavirus. They have prioritized basketball and football money over education and the health and safety of the students who are paying to attend their schools, uh, not to mention their staff and faculty. What do you think James Naismith would write about the state of college athletics, specifically college basketball in early 2021? Well, uh, he'd write, I told you so, um, because he definitely did predict this. Uh, He'd be exasperated. And uh, if it was like anything uh, like it was during his lifetime, no one would listen to him because besides his invention of basketball, uh, people more or less ignored him. Um, But yeah, he'd be disgusted. He was a very pious um, uh, guy who detested greed uh, and his sort of passion in life was the education of young people. Um, He was not a very competitive person. He thought, um, you know, everything should be uh, a sort of pursuit of virtue and, and, and moral, uh, um, uh, uh, I guess, morality. And, and he, uh, uh, he didn't even care much about winning and losing. Um, uh, really, the only reason that there is a winner in basketball games is because uh, the games have to end and he needed a way to keep the students engaged. Um, so he would have thought this was a completely predictable um, and uh, detestable development. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Nick. I suspect you're right. And you do state um, later in this chapter that college athletics can be considered amateur only in so much as their players don't get paid to play. And I mostly agree with that sentiment, though I do have to state that if I had a nickel for every time a college player dribbled across the half court line and then picked up their dribble for no reason at all, uh, I would be a very rich man. Yeah. Um, breaking a full court press uh, is, <laughs> I should have added that too, I think, in a parenthetical. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about dribbling. You alluded to this some earlier uh, in the original rules of basketball. A player was required to remain stationary with the ball, but was allowed to pass. How was dribbling incorporated into the game and what would a philosopher say about how dribbling was incorporated into the game? 
yes. So soon after um, basketball's invention and it spread extremely fast, um, mainly because of the fact that it was invented at the YMCA. And so there are YMCA chapters all over the world at that point, and, and they have a newspaper so they could publish the rules. And um, one of the teams at Yale, one of the first collegiate teams, um, they basically got around the rule by quote unquote, passing to themselves by bouncing it off the floor and then continuing their movement, essentially inventing dribbling. Um, again, it was a, uh, a kind of sly workaround um, and it was a thing that immediately made the game better and more compelling. And it's why Naismith called it one of the best adjustments to the game that he ever saw. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it, it was a kind of a, 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 a tweak that benefited the game. And I talked to a couple philosophers about this sort of thing about, cause it was cheating. I mean, <laughs> they were cheating. The, the kids at Yale were cheating. Um, about whether or not that was okay. Is it, when is it okay to cheat? Um, even if it, you know, is it okay to cheat even if it's for the benefit of the game itself? Um, and a philosopher I spoke to um, spoke about the Forsberry flop, which was um, in the high jump, people used to um, always jump by jumping over the bar by going forward. Um, and I believe it was rather recently in the seventies, um, there was a, uh, track and field athlete. Um, I think Joe Forsberry, if I'm incorrect, feel free to uh, write me an angry email. Um, but uh, he approached it by running forward and then turning and kind of arching his back and jumping over backwards. And he immediately started uh, breaking all these rules. And, and at that point, um, or excuse me, breaking all these records. Um, he didn't break any rules, um, but he was breaking records. And at that point, the governing bodies had the decision to make, should we ban that or allow it? And they allowed it. And therefore that specific uh, aspect of, of track and field has blossomed and, and you have people um, setting all these amazing records to this day. And it's, it's the sort of thing that if, if the rule is for the benefit of the whole, or if the, if the rule break is, is for the benefit of the game itself, um, and it's demonstrable, demonstrable that, that, that that is the case, which it was for dribbling, was for the force very flopped, and you, you know, I think you, you, can, you can allow it. Absolutely, thank you, Nick. And continuing with dribbling, Chris Paul, undoubtedly one of the greatest regular season point guards to ever play the game uh, has a move called the yo-yo dribble. Um, I would like for you to tell our listeners how this move came about, but more interestingly, you spoke with a master magician about this move and debated over whether or not the yo-yo dribble is a magic trick. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about that conversation. Yeah. So the, the yo-yo dribble was like all great inventions or many great inventions, rather a, uh, born from accident. Um, about a decade ago, the NBA um, introduced a new basketball that was not made of leather. It was made of a synthetic material um, and it was a disaster. It was tearing up the players' fingers. They could barely get through the preseason before they had to change it. But before they did change it, Chris Paul noticed that when he would really forcibly dribble it forward by putting backspin on it, he could make it look like he was passing it forward on a bounce pass, but then it would come back to him like a yo-yo retracting uh, back on its cord. And he could do it with a synthetic ball. And then he sort of taught himself how to do it with the, the normal leather ball. And you'll occasionally see players do it today. It's a tough move. I think D'Angelo Russell um, uh, does it uh, a bunch or you can see him do it 
um, you know, occasionally. And it's such a cool move. And I want to sort of speak with, to a magician about, you know, is this a magic trick? Because it's deceiving the defenders. Uh, this is this is a form of magic, is it not? And, and I talked, spoke to a couple of magicians. They had really kind of fun um, thoughts on it. And, and magicians being magicians are very protective of their craft. And they said, no, of course, that's not magic. It's a, it's a trick. It's a, you know, a magic has... There's a there's an arc to it. There's a there's a uh, there's intent. There's a narrative structure. It's 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 a whole sort of um, self-contained uh, uh, miracle um, that happens where you manipulated. Whereas whereas the yo-yo dribble is sort of briefly freezing a defender. Um, they were impressed by it, but um, they nonetheless kind of said, "No, that's that's not magic." But in the process of speaking to them, I I got to learn a lot more about um, about sort of what magicians uh, consider to be magic and uh, the kind of ins and outs of, of their their craft. And that was a, a real sort of fun section for me to, to work on. I bet. Yeah, this seems like a really fun book to write, Nick. Um, we're going to dive yeah. into, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, we're going to dive into one more chapter here. The next chapter in your book deals with the shot clock. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to get a little bit, uh, heretical here. In what way, Nick, is the inventor of the shot clock like Jesus Christ? And how did oh, this invention <laughs> change the game? <laughs> That's not heretical whatsoever. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it, he, the the shot clock really did um, change the game, as you said, forever. It was uh, probably the most important post Naismith invention. Um, with basketball, um, I guess mean, dribbling you could count as an invention or a, a or cheating. I don't know how you ever want to describe it, but but the shot clock was incredibly important because at that time, in the nineteen uh, fifties, the NBA, the very or late fifties, early sixties, the young young NBA was uh, in a crisis. Games were extremely slow. Um, it was just team stalling that no impetus to shoot or to make attempts. So if a team would have an early lead, they would just keep the ball and dribble it around and hold it for minutes at a time. There were incredibly low scoring games. It was awful. Um, and so the owner of the Syracuse nationals, this guy named Danny Biazzone, I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but mm -hmm. again, apologies, angry emails, please. Um, he, um, he knew that they had to, have a limit they have to have a shot clock um and he devised this he also was a bowling alley owner um that was his main job this was back when the nba wasn't a gazillion dollar juggernaut um it was the kind of thing that a bowling alley owner would own a team as a sort of high side hustle um it was his yeah and and he basically sat down and, and looked at the box scores from uh, looked at the box score from a game that he thought was very entertaining and he noticed how many shots were there and he did some quick division and he realized that, okay, there's 24 seconds for each possession and then we'll do that. And he being an owner, a team owner already, he was in a position to sort of push for it. And he was briefly ignored and then basically did a demonstration demonstration game. And like that, it cleaved basketball into two separate eras. You have, before shot clock, after shot clock. And as you're saying, <laughs> to be heretical, this invention was the uh, dawn of a, uh, a completely new era uh, 
for for basketball. This uh, we are currently living in the New Testament, um, thanks to Danny Biazzone. Absolutely, thank you. And time, Nick, is super important to basketball. Um, mm-hmm. As you mentioned, there is no clock in baseball, tennis, golf, many other games. Though I guess baseball does have a pitch clock now, but it's not super yeah. out in the front there. Um, Part of the drag at the end of a basketball game is when teams resort to fouling each other repetitively uh, to stop the clock. One gentleman had an idea for how to change this. Uh, can you tell us about his idea and if it was ever executed? Yeah, his name is Nick Elam. Um, he is a professor um, at uh, Ball State. He's actually an education professor. Um, and his idea came while watching a, um, I believe it was an NC State game uh, in the ACC tournament uh, decades ago. That was, you know, it had, the ending was was how it was ending how so many games end with fouls and going to the foul line. And he thought that this is such a drag. This was such a thrilling and exciting game. And now we're just basically waiting for uh, it to die out and the last gases to escape the corpse of this game. Um, and he devised a way to sort of basically make make it so the intentional fouling would only hurt the team that was fouling, or it would gave them no benefit. Because as it were, the fact that you can freeze time is a huge benefit. Um, and so, of course, teams are going to intentionally foul. I mean, that's that's the only thing they can do towards the end of a game. So they're going to do it. So his idea was to remove the clock after a certain amount of time, four minutes basically from the, 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 end, the end whistle. And then you take the um, take a sort of set score, however many, you know, I, I, I believe in his original one, it was, um, gosh, seven points, 14 points. Mm. Anyway, whatever the team's uh, points are at that moment, you add you add to the the leading teams. You know, if they're if there's if the score is forty seven to thirty seven, and the leading team is um, the, the 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 target score becomes uh, forty four. Geez, I had to do math in my head there because you add seven to to thirty seven or to and so at that point, the first team to reach that point that that target score forty four wins the game. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no clock. The clock is off. Uh, you're basically just the whole um, motivation is to reach that target score. Um, and it's extremely complicated to explain. I did a terrible job just then. Uh, I apologize, but it's the kind of thing that when you see it in action, it's brilliant. And last year at the all-star game, um, so the, 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 the gentleman, Nick Elam, um, super smart guy, he basically spent over a decade trying to find ways to make this a thing, emailing athletic directors, commentators, anyone who he, he wrote this 80 page PowerPoint deck. Um, and then uh, the basketball tournament, this three on three um, pro-am tournament that ESPN covers basically got one of his emails and said, yeah, we'll try it for a couple of games. It was a huge success. And so last year's all-star game, which all-star games, as you know, are probably no kind of, there's no defense players aren't playing hard. You know, it's, it's it's a very much an exhibition game sidetracked this year is going to be even worse because no one wants to be playing the all-star game mm-hmm. in the middle of a global pandemic but that's besides the point mm-hmm. anyway the nba last year instituted the elam ending and it was brilliant uh players were 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 kind of getting floor burns trying their best to to claw their way back the the team that was trailing actually wound up winning 
Um, and it has a sort of added benefit too, is by having a target score, there is always a game-winning shot. It's you, basically, there's, there's a, a walk-off no matter what. There's no dribbling out the clock. It doesn't sort of fade away. There is a time where there is a moment of, of, of brilliance where a team wins and, and takes the win by scoring points. Um, and I think it's just the, the most genius little kind of tweak. And I spoke um, to Nick Ian about, about it and, and he's a very interesting analytical guy. And, and his thought process was very similar to Danny Biazzone's. And we'll see if the Elam ending becomes a thing across the sport, like the shot clock was, but honestly, I, I think it, I think it would be pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you. And there was one of the greatest all-star games I've ever seen last year when they oh, yeah. used that ending. Um, and it's cool that that guy's from ball state. Um, I have to, do a quick side point my wife is a graduate of ball state university muncie indiana oh, cool. represent and i i <laughs> always thought muncie was interesting because i visited there once and they're like kind of chamber of commerce brochure about the town lists one of their main um attractions the walmart that they have in town and, um i think a year after i visited that walmart blew up because there was a meth lab in the photography center well then um, it's definitely worth being put in the brochure <laughs> right yeah, probably got, uh, Dave Letterman too, right? He was, he yeah. was Ball State. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Munciana go team. Um, all right, Nick. Well, I could talk about this book all day, but we are running out of time. But as we are talking about time, I did want to ask you one final question. This is not in your book. Uh, maybe this is something for the sequel or the, um, the paperback edition. But um, <laughs> as I was reading this book, there was a game on TV between the Boston Celtics and the New Orleans Pelicans. It was a very exciting game that involved a pretty epic comeback on the part of new orleans several lead changes and an overtime but the five minute overtime ended up taking about half an hour to play because the referees as part of nba's relatively recent rule change regarding instant replay kept stopping the game to review a video of a play for five six seven ten minutes at a time and talk about a momentum killer i would rather see 30 free throws personally uh, this <laughs> in my opinion, is the greatest threat that the temporal momentum of the game is facing right now. Uh, would you change this, Nick? And if so, how? And is there an expert in another field that you might consult to speak to about this? Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, for one thing, with the Elam ending, there would be no overtime. So there's one benefit. But for video re review in, in general, I always have a very unpopular opinion about video review is that I personally never mind it. Um, I know that everyone else does. I think it's because I, um, I, I, it gives me time to zone out during the game. Um, I can check my phone. I can sort of indulge in all the distractions that uh, I get to uh, be uh, entwined in, 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 in this modern uh, era of ours, but it is, I get why it's, it's bad. And you hear, uh, you only hear, I would change it just so I could stop hearing Jeff Van Gundy complain about it, doing the call for it. Um, yeah. But they, they have a good start, which is the central sort of in Secaucus, New Jersey, the central refereeing hub where there's always someone there watching the games and kind of advising, except that person, um, it, they're not working fast enough and it defeats the point when the referees at the games have to go over to the monitors themselves anyway. Um, it, it would make sense, I think, that if it's an obvious thing like out of bounds, which can be kind of uh, figured out pretty quickly by a couple of reviews, if you just have the folks in New Jersey do that 
referees were an earpiece, make the call, keep it going. It's reviewed. I get the fact that you want to make sure everything's right. Totally. Um, I think that is uh, the, the fastest way to do that. Where it comes to judgment call things like fouls, uh, that's, you're right. I, I probably need to speak to some sort of expert in a different field to get an idea of how to fix that because um, that is something that I, uh, is above my, my pay grade. I don't know. It's, it's, um, you know, I do talk to a, a, a casting a soap opera casting director about flopping in my book. So mm-hmm. maybe have, have someone, a soap opera casting director uh, in, in New Jersey with them and, and, and she'll be able to tell if someone's faking or not. So that might take care of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree that you have to get the call right, but I think at the end of an overtime game, yeah. um, it just kills the momentum. But there are, uh, Nick, several um, things that I would like to see happen just so Jeff and Gundy will stop talking about them. So <laughs> I am on board with you there. Um, and thank you, Nick. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. Readers, if you are oh, interested. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. If Readers, if you're interested in books about basketball, this is a no-brainer. You need to buy this today from Quail Ridge Book books.com will ship it to you for free you will be supporting an independent bookstore if you need a father's day gift and dad likes sports this is a no-brainer and if you're not a basketball fan but you are interested in how experts in a field approach problems that are a little outside of their areas of expertise you should give this book a shot you will not be disappointed i have been speaking with nick green author of how to watch basketball like a genius which is published by our friends at abrams press nick thank you so much for joining me I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Once again, I would like to thank Nick Green for joining me. Copies of How to Watch Basketball Like a Genius can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O, K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Booking.